You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. I'm going to read Acts chapter 12. So we're going through the book of Acts. We're almost done this. but we, this Next week will be the final week of our time in meditation of the life and activity of the early church in Jerusalem. And so Acts, uh, next week we're just going to be kind of covering one final passage. But we're going to be in Acts 12, the entirety of the chapter, looking at this amazing story that's found in Acts chapter 12. And per what we've done so far in this series... I'm just going to read the whole thing right now, and then you'll kind of get the background of what I'm saying and the characters involved in this story. So Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1, there's a lot going on in this, in this story, so follow along, whether you have Bible on your phone or you're holding you know, the, the Bible in front of you, follow along verse 1, that's what I'm going to read from. About that time, Herod the king, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, He killed James. Seems a little understated. James is a major player so far in the book of Acts. He's done. He killed James, the brother of John. So not the brother of Jesus, but the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, which is one of their festivals. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. That is an insane amount of soldiers to guard one person, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Quite a start to the story. A somber note. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping, which was a miracle in and of itself, knowing that this probably is his last night here on earth, walking the way of Jesus as Jesus was brought before the people in a mock trial and then killed the next day. Peter miraculously is asleep. I can't sleep when someone sends me an angry email. Knowing that I'm going to die the next day, I can't believe that this man is asleep. But, hey, the Lord gave him some sleep. He's bound with two chains. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, so he's bound between two chains. So there's two soldiers on each side of him, and they're both chained to him. It's a little overkill. And there's also sentries, which would likely be three or four more, at the door guarding the prison. Guarding one man. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter, like nudged him to the side. Being with kids, sometimes I'll get a cold foot to the back if they crawl on our bed. That's kind of the sense. You get a little nudge. Wake up. Get up quickly. And said to him, dress your... Oh, chains fell from his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you, or get dressed, and follow me. And he went out and followed him. (laughs) Now Peter, that's he, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision, like I'm still dreaming. 
When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left. And when Peter came to himself, it's almost like he came to his senses, he realized that this was actually happening, and says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. She recognizes Peter's voice, and in her joy, she's so excited, she didn't open the gate, but she just ran back into the house, slams the door in Peter's face, runs back into the house and reports that Peter is standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. He's in prison with like 12 soldiers guarding him. You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that this was so, and they kept saying, well, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. That's an understatement, but they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to like, be silent, like, remember, they are wanted people. He's a wanted man. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. Now, not the James that was killed. James, who was the, actual, the brother of Jesus, who later on wrote James in the New Testament. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. So he's just gone. He reappears again later on, but not in this story. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. There was no little disturbance. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. And this is kind of like an aside. That's the end of Peter's story, but this is the end of Herod. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is much later on. They came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, who was King's Chamberlain, which was his like kind of uh, like second-hand man, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So this is modern-day Syria basically having a scuffle between Herod and Herod's upset with them and they want a new deal because they were dependent for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them and the people were shouting, "This this is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give God the glory. And grotesquely, eaten by worms, I love how Luke includes that in the passage. There's a lot of other details that could be included, but it's like, he was eaten by worms. I'll explain why I think that was. And breathed his last. But in much contrast to how the story starts, the word of God increased and multiplied. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Okay. Anyone ever heard of what's called a paradoxical reaction? What's a paradox? Anyone know English? What's a paradox? I shouldn't say like English, like like English literature. What's? Yeah, Andrew would know what a paradox means. Anyone know what is a paradox? Yell it out. What's a paradox? 
Yeah. It, it, a paradox is something reacting or something being the opposite of what was intended, right? That's a paradox. So a paradoxical reaction is, especially when you talk about a chemical reaction, it's when something reacts a different or opposite way from what you would expect it to act like. So let's say you took a painkiller. How would a paradoxical reaction react? Yeah, there's more pain than what was intended. It was supposed to decrease your pain, but what happened was the paradox, it increased your pain. All through this story, the reaction to what God had done was a paradox to all of them. No one anticipated or expected any of this to happen the way it did. As we've gone through this series, we've seen the early church move forward through, you know, beginning with this little humble beginning, similar to a restoration church. That's how Acts begins. In Acts chapter 2, or halfway through Acts chapter 1, when we began our series, there's just a small number of people gathered in a, in a room at Tapestry Hall. About 100, 120 people. This is a restoration church. We're gathered together at the beginning. That is the Christian church. Those are the followers of Jesus throughout the entire world at the beginning of Acts. And we've seen this group of people who were, who were commanded to be a witness. Like, you need to go tell what Jesus has done. That's their command. And then he says, I'm not going to leave you on your own. I'm going to give you the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to come. And the main job of the Spirit is to embolden you so that you can continue to witness in every area of your life. So you can tell the story of what Jesus has done to your friends, your family, your city. That's what the Spirit primarily did for that early church, emboldened them for witness. And we saw right from the beginning of Acts through an event called Pentecost where thousands of people came to faith, where Philip shared the gospel with Samaria and then, and then to an Ethiopian and the gospel went to Africa. And then, and then Saul of Tarsus that we looked at last week was radically changed by the witness of Jesus. And then two weeks ago, we looked at this previous chapter, actually Acts chapter 10. Now it's not just Jewish people who were convinced converting to this new movement. Now there's Gentile people who are converting to this new movement led by a man named Cornelius. From this one little group meeting in one space to now there's thousands that are spreading over the ancient world. And in this story, we're introduced to another character. So that's kind of the context that pick it up from Acts chapter 12. This story, we're introduced to another character. About that time, Herod the king. Now, if you know your Bible, you know your New Testament, we've, you've seen the word Herod before. This is a new Herod. This is the first time that this Herod was spoken of in the Bible. This is specifically Herod Agrippa I. I don't know how many Agrippas there were, but this is the first one. Herod Agrippa I. Grew up in Rome. He was on good terms, if you know your ancient history, on good terms with the now emperor, because they grew up together. Caligula. And Caligula, he was on such good terms with Caligula that Caligula sent him back to Judea and said, you're going to reign over the nation of New Judea as my representative. And not only that, I'm going to throw Galilee and Tyre and Sidon, which is all modern day Syria and Lebanon. I'm going to throw that all into. So Herod Agrippa 
now has more range than any previous Herod that came before him, even exceeding his grandfather, who was called Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, yes, was that same Herod that Matthew spoke of that is responsible for what's called the Massacre of the Innocents. When his dominance was threatened by a rumor of a new king being born in his land, what did he do? He ordered the killing of every male child under two years old because he was so threatened by this new king. This is his grandson, not a great-grandfather. This is his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. And this new movement in Acts, just as it was in Matthew, this new movement was a threat to his power and his dominance. Seems to be the theme, doesn't it, as you go through the book of Acts? Like, no matter who it is, whether it's Sadducees, high priests, Herods, doesn't really matter who it is, we've seen this over and over and over again, that it doesn't matter what's happening because... the, The point is this, over and over we've seen this in the book of Acts, and I've said this before in previous messages through this, but this is one of the main themes. If you are not willing to give up control of your life, you're not going to follow Jesus. And it doesn't really matter what Jesus is doing in your life. It doesn't matter of the morality, because there were miracles happening. The church is feeding the poor. It's providing the jobs, doing a lot of what Herod's job was to do. The church was doing that voluntarily. It doesn't matter. Because Herod is not willing to give up control of his life. And if you're not willing to give up control of your life, Jesus will always just be a threat to you, to your autonomy and your control. And get this. This is not just a lesson for the rich and the powerful, like the kings and the politicians. This is true for all of us. If we're not willing to give up control of our life and say, Jesus, my life is yours. If we're not willing to give up our autonomy to Jesus, Jesus will always be a threat to us. And morality doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter about morality or whether this is a good thing for you or, or evidence, whether you see Jesus working through, through people, it doesn't really matter. It comes down to, are you willing to give him your life? And all through the book of Acts, those who weren't saw Jesus and this movement as a threat. Now, that's an aside, but that's why Herod, it says, about that time, Herod the king, as it says in verse 1, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Herod, in these first couple verses, gives an incredible blueprint. He's a mean guy. He's a tyrant, but he's no foolish tyrant. He's a smart tyrant, which tyrants often are. But in these first couple verses, Herod gives us this blueprint for an amazing plan of how to quell an uprising that you don't like. He gives an amazing blueprint for how to do that. The first one was cut off the head. Like, who's the leader? Get rid of them. Because you're hoping that once the leader is gone, and literally cut off the head, you're hoping that once the leader's gone, then the people will just be like a flock of sheep and just scatter and it'll just be chaos. There'll be no plan anymore. There'll be no uprising anymore because the leader's gone. There's no one to control the herd. 
In this case, literally, he was cutting off the head, as it says in verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This was the same James, that, fish, that humble fisherman that Jesus called and turned into an apostle, eventually. One from humble beginnings who became a trusted and beloved friend of Jesus himself. This was one of the first miscreants that the Roman and Jewish government was trying to track down one of the leaders and in a stunning move to show that you mean business, likely hoping it's going to result in chaos, you're just going to get rid of him. He's going to be killed. Secondly, not only cut off the head, those of you who are planning to be a tyrant and quelling an uprising, this is how you do it. Cut off the head. Secondly, gain public approval. Louis says... He killed James, the brother of John with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews. You know, Herod is willing to play the crowd. This is not some leader bent on doing the right thing, but he's willing to do what it takes to secure his authority, giving the mob what they want. This is an angry mob, and they want to see blood. So we're going to give them what they want. Especially now that they've been rumored to be fraternizing with Gentiles. Tisk tisk. I'm reminded of the movie, the greatest movie ever made, Gladiator. Of the quote that says, The mob is fickle, brother. And it's true. Gain public approval. Man, that still preaches today to our political scene. It doesn't really matter if you're doing the right thing or not as long as you get approval from the public. Thirdly, demonstrate your control. Show the people who's really in charge. Not only are we going to kill one leader, well, the other leader, we're going to throw him in jail. We're not going to kill him and be done with it and then people forget about it. No, no, no. We're going to make a scene. We're going to make a scene. We're going to throw him in jail in maximum security prison. We're going to arrest him. And then as it says in verse 4, when they seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. We're going to make a public mock trial. Not to determine whether he's innocent or not. Herod knows what he's going to do. Well, we're going to do a public mock trial to show the public who it really is the villain, Peter, and this church, and who's the hero, Herod. Do you understand what's going on here? This is a perfect plan to quell an uprising. Not only is it going to, he's going to take these leaders out, but he's going to gain public approval for the next election. There's no elections at that point, but you know what I'm saying. We're not going to have some private trial to determine whether this, like he wants a Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial where everyone is tweeting about it. Everyone's got opinions about it. And it doesn't matter what's true or what's not. He just wants people talking about it. Trended on Twitter where the truth really doesn't matter. It's just what the public thinks. And Peter's going to be the villain and I'm going to be the hero. It's foolproof. He's a tyrant. I'll give him credit, though. He's not a foolish one. It's a good plan. This isn't about justice, though. 
The point is this. Why does he do all of these things in these first four verses? So that the whole world will know who really holds the power. These guys don't have the power. I hold the power. The cards are in my hands. That's what this is for. To show everyone I'm the one who holds power in this world. (laughs) See, I got one side. That's Herod. You got the other one. You got this church. One of their leaders is just killed. Instantly. Done. The other one is in maximum security prison. And against the might of Rome and the people and leaders of their own country. What do you do? Like, what do you do with that? This is like going into a boxing ring against Mike Tyson. In famous Mike Tyson word, quote, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And they got a punch in the face. What do you do? You know, the prison, I'm, 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 I'm just, I was drawn so much as I was reading through this prison scene and kind of like picturing myself in this prison, which I can't even picture myself in the prison, but you got Peter who's sitting like kind of as like a, a microcosm of what's going on in the church in general and what I think speaks to every human heart still here today. You got Peter who's sitting between two guards and he's chained to both of them. And you got four soldiers at the door who are just going to rotate out every couple hours. You got, you got squadrons of soldiers committed to your imprisonment. There's no way out. There's no way out. That's the picture of this prison. There's no, it's so overdone. This is maximum security. Do you know what the point I think is? You know what the point is? We're going to so overdo it to show you have no power here. You got no power. You got no cards to play. You got no skin in the game. You have no power here. And here's this for us. Here's this for us. As I got thinking about this, I'm like, we all have things in our life where it feels like we're chained between two soldiers and there's soldiers. You have no power here. You are completely powerless to escape this prison. No influence to wield, no cards to play. You might have a porn addiction and you feel completely powerless to overcome it. And you've tried. It's not for a lack of trying. You've tried hundreds of times begging God for forgiveness and yet the next week going right back to it. And you feel imprisoned and completely powerless to get out of that prison. You might have relational brokenness in your family. That just doesn't get any better. Like it's a slog to come home. And it feels like prison. And you, have no, you feel completely powerless to do anything about it. Like what do you do? You have no power there. You have no influence. You might be filled with guilt and shame for past failures, past sins in your life that you are completely powerless to overcome. 
Aaron, why can't I get, why can't I get over this? And it just fills your life. That's the picture of the prison. That's the point. Peter, you've got no power here. There's nothing you can do. It's maximum security. Here's the threat of the prison. The prison was to break him. It's to break all of us. That's what the prison represents. It's to break you. To strip you of the hope that you have. So that you live in defeat. It's never going to get any better. This is, all, this is the way it's always going to be. It's never going to get better. I will always live with shame. That will define my life. I will always live with this addiction. I will always live with this relationship that I can't stand. It will always be this way. The prison is supposed to tell you to live in defeat. You have no power to get over this. The prison is to make you succumb to your condemnation. You know, Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, but when you're sitting in the prison, it feels like condemnation, doesn't it? I have no power here. It's to steal your joy. What joy is there in a prison? Chained between... Chain between two guards. There's no power. Is that you? Is that you this morning? Your life is defined by this powerless feeling of addiction, shame, brokenness. You feel prison. What do you need? When there's, you got no skin in the game, you got no cards left to play. The only thing we can have is ask for, not for advice. You think Peter needs advice? Here's how to make yourself more comfortable in jail. You think Peter needs advice? The only thing they can ask for is divine intervention. We have no power. All we can ask for is divine intervention. When you've got no skin left, when you've got no cards left to play, you need divine intervention. Man, I love this. Because in verse 5 it says this. After this is Herod's elaborate scheme in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That's That's the only weapon they got left. We had no influence left. This thing's gonna die tomorrow. We gotta pray. That's all we got for divine intervention. Prayer is the powerful language of the powerless. It's always been that way. It's the powerful language of the powerless from the inception of the church. This is, what, this is the weapon the church yields. We don't have any other weapons. Like we, don't have, we don't have, it's not like we've got power to wield in this world. We have prayer. We ask for divine intervention. It's all the church has got. It's all the church ever has. James 5.16 says, Prayer of the righteous has great power. It's all we've got. (laughs) We always need divine intervention. Kale said a thousand times at the beginning, 
This, is a this church is a thousand times, I don't even know how he said it, Kale. it didn't really make sense, but it doesn't matter. It sounded a thousand times dependent on God. That's all we've got. Here's the thing though. When the church starts relying or claiming power from other sources, you know the first thing that's to go in the life of the church? You think once we got power in other sources, what's the first thing to go? Prayer. We don't pray. A church that doesn't pray is getting their power from something else, but it ain't God. We have to be, we have to be like, search your heart. Like if we're not praying, you're claiming power from something else, but it's not God. Earnest prayer. Here's the thing, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta wrap this up, but here's the thing about divine intervention. I don't know what the church specifically was asking from, for God, whether it was like change Herod's heart, make Peter comfortable. I don't know what it was. But the rest of the story and what God does, no one expects him to do that. No one in the story is anticipating what Peter, what, what God is about to do. No one. <laughs> Herod, more obviously, you know, if you go through Herod, Herod discovers, oh, Peter's gone? Oh, shoot. My whole elaborate scheme is falling apart in front of me. He goes, searches for Peter, can't find Peter, and in a fit of rage, he kills all the guards that were responsible for Peter. And then a bunch, you know, some time passes, and we're like, what happened to Herod? His elaborate scheme didn't work out, even though it was foolproof. It was not what we were expecting. Later on, what happens is, at the end... Uh, this after scene, Herod's angry with this other nation, yada, yada, yada. He goes out, he's about himself, doesn't give God glory. People are like, wow, that's a God. He's not, he's not just a man, and Herod loves it. We get this after scene, this gruesome after scene where an angel of the Lord strikes him down and he's eaten by worms. You know what I think why he concludes he's eaten by worms? The point was, he's returning to the ground. Because that's all he is without divine intervention. Without the creation of God, we are dust. From dust we came, and to dust we return. That's what I think God is demonstrating. And in the worst way possible for Herod, his whole scheme blows up. Here's what I want to focus on, though. So it wasn't just Herod and the people of Judea that were shocked by what happened. This is a paradox. This worked in the opposite way from what we expected. The actual prayers weren't expecting this. You notice in the story, Peter's miraculously saved. He goes and knocks on the door where they are. They're all gathered in Mary's house. He's knocking at the door. And Rhoda's so overjoyed. Peter's at the door. And they're like, no, you're out of your mind. Weren't we just praying for this? And when the prayer is answered, they're like, no, that's not possible. It's not possible. Yes, we were praying. You ever praying for, like, come on, be honest with me. You're praying for something, you're like, it's still not, it's not going to happen. We know it's not going to happen. Right? You know you do that. And that's what's happening. Like, they're praying, let, let, set Peter free. And when God does it, they're like, that's impossible. You can't, that can't happen. We have no power. It's not possible. We're powerless in this. It's kind of humorous, like, the people that are praying for what happened are the people that are like, no, that's, that can't happen. 
then why are you praying? And yet I look at it, I'm like, man, don't we not do that all the time? Like we pray for stuff, but yet in the back of our mind, we're like, I don't know, this is not, we know, we already know this ain't going to happen. You're out of your mind. <laughs> I love it. It says, she insists, no, it's really him. And they say, well, it must be his angel. They thought it more believable that it was Peter's angel than Peter himself. That's how much they couldn't believe what they were actually praying for. You understand what's happening here? I love this. I love that this is included in part of this text. You know why? Because our best prayers are still insufficient. Our best faithful prayers are still full of doubt, right? They're not sufficient. You know how many times I'm thinking like, am I praying exactly, like, am I completely clear of any doubt or misgivings in this prayer? Because I'm going to like say this magical prayer and God only listens to perfect prayers, right? No. Listens to very imperfect prayers. Full of doubt. And yet God still answers. Listen, sometimes I think we can get strapped down too much by motive analyzation. Now, I'm all for self, you know, self-reflection. We do that all the time. But I think sometimes we get strapped down by motive analyzation that I'm not going to do something. I've heard this by Christians a lot. Like, I'm not going to do something, Aaron, because, man, what if I'm proud? Or like, what if I, you know, what, what if this, what if this, what if this, what if this? Guys, we're human. We're frail. We're, we're, we're fallible beings. You're always going to be proud. You're always going to be selfish. But it shouldn't stop you from doing the right thing. You know, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to preach. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to relate to this person. Guys, we are fallible creatures. The point is that we pray to the infallible one who still answers very imperfect, fallible prayers. It's the powerful language of the powerless. You know what I love in this passage too? Do you know who else wasn't expecting his miracle? Peter. He's like, this isn't you. Is this, remember that YouTube video? It's like the, the, kid who's, the kid who's high after the dentist. He's like, is this, is this real life? This can't be happening. He, he, the apostle Peter, didn't think it was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. It wasn't until after the miracle in verse 11, he says, he came to himself. He's like, what? I cannot believe this just happened. Guys, the point, like, this is God. This is God. Even the best Christian, God does things even the best Christian doesn't expect. <laughs> and it speaks to those of us, all of us, to a degree who are stuck in prison and who are powerless to get it. We have no power, no skin, no cards left to play. <laughs> who are going to God in their addictions and in their shame, who are going to God with prayer and they don't really even believe it, what they're praying. They're asking for freedom, but you're like, I've done this before, God. The team's going to come now and they're going to lead us in one final song as I close. They can come on up. No, I love that there's I love the description that's found in the prison scene. Now Peter's asleep, handcuffed between two, two guards, and 
there's like a slow build to what's happening that every Christian wrestles with, that every person, not just Christian, every person in this room, this is the hope that we have. In our powerlessness and in our prisons where we have no options left, it says light shone in that cell, revealing our condition. That's no longer in the dark. God notices. I see where you are. <laughs> Little detail nudges him to the side, nudges, nudges on the side. Peter, wake up. Wake up out of your prison, out of your sleep. And chains fall from his hands. There's nothing Peter can do. Chains just fall from his hands. This angel says, Get dressed, Peter. Put on your clothes. Like now? We're, we're just going to leave right now? Get dressed and follow me. Put on that coat. It's cold outside. Follow me. I'll show you the way. And as they go through, as it says, they pass the first, second guard. All these guards that were supposed to keep him in prison. They go through guard after guard. And just when you think you're out, of that prison, there's an iron gate right in front of you, sealed shut. There's no way out of this iron gate. No human being can get through that iron gate. It says it opens on its own accord. See, this story is, story is for us because we're powerless. We don't need advice. We need divine intervention. even when we don't even think it's going to happen. I don't know what prison you might be in this morning. I named off some examples, but I don't know what prison you might find yourself in. But we want to use the weapon that we have. I'll let them sing and then I'll close. God, thank you so much for your word. Man, we are powerless. Thank you for intervening. It's what I need in our addictions, in our shame. Lord, I just, there is someone here in this room. Lord, to a degree, all of us, but Someone who's like, Aaron, I'm in that prison. I have no way out. Lord, we, we're asking for you to divinely intervene. Ultimately, though, Lord, there might be one in this room who's like, Aaron, I've been stuck here my whole life. What's, how do I get out of this? Well, Jesus gave his life. This is, this is Jesus. Shine a light into our condition, seeing our sins, seeing our failures, seeing our foolishness. Said, I care about this. I see it. Chains fall off our hands. Follow me. Leads us through guard after guard and gate after gate. 
thank you, God. I pray for this in your name. Amen.